Welcome to Wellness Spring, Faith. I'm so happy and I feel very honoured and blessed to have you on the show today. So thank you for coming. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Dear friends, my guest today is Faith Agugu. She is a psychotherapist, entrepreneur, visionary, and the founder of Silver Sirens Women's Group, Redefining Aging. And I personally was very fortunate to attend a live event last um, December the 4th, 2021. And I was in awe of this amazing creative goddess in action. She was extremely empowering. And I was also blessed to speak last week on International Ladies Day for one of her panels with two other incredible ladies. And um, the theme was Empowered Women, Empowered Women. And I know Faith is just, um, you know, such an, a wonderful ambassador for empowering women. And I know from her um, Facebook group. She's out there every morning, 5.30 a.m., swimming in Kudji, where most of us are sleeping. She has boundless energy, <laughs> and she's beautiful inside and out, and I know you'll agree with me once you listen to this chat. So, Faith, could you please <laughs> tell our listeners about your background, where you grew up, and how you started mm -hmm. your self-healing journey? And what led you to be this creative goddess you are today? <laughs> a long journey. Hello, um, everyone. Thank you for yeah. Thank you for offering your time. You know, I believe very strongly that time is the most beautiful and um, powerful resource and precious resource that we have. So I don't um, take it likely that you have chosen to spend your time right here in this moment with myself and Beverly. And I really, you know, appreciate it. And, um, you know, I am an African woman who um, left Nigeria at the age of nine to move to the UK with my family and um, lived in the UK. Um, so I met my family for the first time because we were separated when I was one. I met them for the first time at the age of nine and that was challenging. So through my, they were lovely. The, the challenge wasn't them, they were lovely. But as a young child with early stage, um, early abandonment, I had a chip on my shoulders was the bottom line, you know? And I met that family and I felt hurt and slighted by that family. And not consciously, but looking back, I was gonna do whatever I could to make them pay, you know? So I was not a naughty person. I was, I just, I was just very disagreeable and I just pushed back against everything my mother um, suggested. So at the age of nine, my mother, I remember my mother organizing a family um, picnic or something like that and I was nine I just met the family I was a couple of months in and I said to my mother I've got other plans so that's kind of the attitude that I had through that time because I you know now looking back I felt so hurt that my mother left me behind you know she left me for, for different reasons she left me and moved to another country and they were gonna send for me to come back and it just it, to join them but it just took much longer so I was with some people that were not very um, kind. The my first people that looked after me were very loving and very kind. But the second lot of people were very unkind. So a lot of my issues <laughs> come from those, those formative years that I was not treated very well. So um, 
Yeah, so when you asked about how what started my eating, um, healing journey, I mentioned that because it was that experience that propelled me to want to, one, go embark on the healing journey myself, two, support other women. I work mainly with women, support other women on the journey as well. So that's a little bit of the background for me. Wow. So when your mother left, you were only one years old? Or I was one. One. Was and one. your father and other siblings, everybody left and you were the only one left? No, my mother and my father. My father received um, a scholarship to study in a university in the UK. And the plan was, we'll go for a year and then we'll be back. You know, and so he left with my mother and my eldest brother. Just been a bit patriarchal. Um, he thought, bring the boy along, you know. And then my sisters were looked after by other family members, and I was looked after by another lot of family members. Again, I know, look, I've done a lot of work in this area, so I know that the intention, they had good intentions. It just didn't work out very well for the for us that were left without our parents, you know, guidance. Wow. And I know you did really well because you also um, became a fashion model. So what was that like and whose genes do you have? You know, your mother's or father's, is anybody else? Oh, yeah. Family? Both. <laughs> yeah, look, um, so yeah, at the age of 16, you know, I was um, living in London, age of 16, uh, I got introduced to a group of um, a collaborative, it's like a design collaborative, and they were putting on fashion parades. And, um, you know, they I was very tall and skinny, you know, and um, they, yeah, asked me to join that the group. So I did a lot of catwalk modeling with them. And then when I moved to Australia at the time, it was 1991, there was very few um, black women in Australia. So, you know, if you were around and you looked half decent, you got um, lots of jobs. I mean, you know, I'm not to undermine how I looked, but um, it was, I, my opportunity came through scarcity because of the fact that there weren't that many people that looked like me. So um, I got a lot of work. And then at the time too, a lot of American companies were filming, they were doing ads in Australia because it was cheaper. So, and, and with Australia wasn't that forward thinking at the time, but with America, you had to have a representation. So, I got to do so many amazing ads, like Hewlett Packard, like some really massive ads. I got to do the page extremely well. Again, being in the right place at the right time. <clears throat> and I modeled right up until the age of 37. And the only reason why I stopped was because I'd started my own fashion agency as a PR and marketing. And I just didn't have time to go to castings anymore. So I believe that if I didn't stop, then I probably would still be doing it now, especially now with older models being, you know, the thing. Um, yeah, I reckon that I probably still could be working, but I'm quite happy that my life took the turn that it did too. Yeah, and I, I also think you're very humble and I love that about you because um, you are a beautiful woman and I would say that's one of the main reasons you got chosen. As I said in the intro, you're beautiful inside and out. Mm -hmm. And I also know from earlier chats with you that you um, mentioned that you had a miscarriage and you mm -hmm. went in to a downward spiral of depression and yeah. that led you to heavy drinking. Do you want to discuss that? Because, yeah. you know, yeah. many, many women, especially from my nursing background, I know the first child is often a miscarriage and you know people around them don't seem 
to understand all that emotional turmoil and grief and it's not only the loss of baby it's the loss of the expectations of what that baby mm. would have meant in your life so my story was slightly different where it wasn't um, a miscarriage i actually terminated a pregnancy so i was one of those women that oh i always thought i was going to be a mother you know i took it for granted i love i love mothering you know and I, and I do feel like I'm a natural mother, you know? So um, when I, I remember being in my twenties thinking, if I got pregnant after 30, no matter the circumstance, I would definitely have a baby. So a relationship that I came to Australia with, so I left Australia at 25, I was 30, I was, I'd been with this man all along. I thought that we were gonna get married and have children. And it became really clear that that's not what he wanted. So, you know, we broke up and then I met somebody literally weeks later on the rebound and um, he proposed to me after a month and I got pregnant, you know, so it was like everything happened. But after the honeymoon period was over, which was over pretty quickly, I realized that he wasn't a very kind person and I found out I was pregnant to him and I just had this kind of out of body experience where it was like my guides were talking to me and they just said, Faith, you think this man is bad to you. How will you feel about having your child spending every second weekend with him without you being around? If he's been like this, you know, there was just a real awareness that I couldn't have a child with this man. That was the bottom line. And I was so committed to, if I get pregnant after 30, I'll definitely have it. It was so heartbreaking for me, even though I knew I had to do it. And there was almost like a robotic part of me that just did it. You know, I booked the appointments, but there was another part of me that was just so devastated, you know. And looking back now with the joy, you know, of hindsight, I guess that maybe my soul knew that that would be my only pregnancy. So there was a deep mourning, you know, yeah. and that was it. And I, and I thought that there would be an opportunity and there wasn't. And even now I think about that child and I always think of it being a girl, you know, and she would be around 25 now. And I always think about when I see 25 year old women, to look like me I think wow maybe my daughter would have looked like that or she'll be like that age you know so yeah I guess um it wasn't meant to be but at the time after the soon after the um determination I just dropped into very very deep depression I mean I didn't have the language for it I didn't I hadn't started this journey so I didn't know what was happening and I medicated throughout alcohol so I was drinking very very heavily for about five years and um you know I ended up in rehab and um, yeah, and gave up drinking. I haven't drank now for about 21 years and I'm super, you know, super grateful for a sober life, you know, but it was because of mourning that grief and trying to medicate that, that loss that got me onto, onto that journey. Yeah, and I know um, on your website, you mentioned that the 12 step program really improved yeah. your life as well. Yeah, I, yeah, it's a big part of my life and it's still today. Oh, wonderful. I, I know a few friends who are part of that program and they swear by it. And I, I yeah. just listen to them talk and I know it's a very well-structured, very supportive yes. program to be yes. part of. So, um, yeah. and I know you're part of... Um, a very dynamic group of ladies. So would you like to tell us about how Silver Sirens was birthed and, you know, who or what inspired you to make it happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah, look, Silver Sirens, I love Silver Sirens. It's like my baby. <laughs> it's funny, I've got three businesses and I always think of Silver Sirens as like the naughty child that you just can't help giving all the attention to, you know. So Silver <laughs> Sirens takes up probably about 45% of my attention, you know, and um, but, but it's so worth it. So the idea started in my therapy practice when women over 40, between 40 and 50, most of them, were being referred to me. And I remember the very first lady, I was up in Byron doing the Mind, Body, Spirit, one of the one of those um, festivals, it was in um, January. And um, I was there working on the store with a friend and a woman came to me and we just clicked and we were doing like 15 minutes rapid healing, um, energetic healing. I was just, um, I just got my accreditation as an energetic healer. And um, we were doing like 15 minutes rapid sessions and she came to me and I just felt a real, connection with her straight away and we had a session and she was really moved and she said look I live in Sydney where do you live I'd love to have more sessions with you and that's how it started so in the unpicking of um, what came up for her was our, our terror around aging she was so worried about it and she kept saying things like you know I'm going to lose my value who will I be no one's going to want me um, all the opportunities will be close to me nobody wants to employ someone who's over blah, whatever age she was at the time. And I, I remember just thinking, wow, this is really new. I don't relate to this. And even though I'd been in the fashion industry and I knew that people talked about aging, but I thought it was just specific to the fashion industry. I didn't realize it was more. And anyway, so this woman, no, and I, she, kept, she came every week and then she started to refer other women to me. And then so at one stage I had 10 of these women, they were all kind of connected in some way. Um, yeah one person brought the next person brought the next person so it was just um and they were all dealing with um midlife crisis you know and we remember sitting in my my I worked from my tiny little apartment at the time and sitting there and and talking to these women about how to allow themselves to drop into the the fear that they had what's it feel like to drop into that and whose voice is it and you know what could turned out that a lot of the messaging was internalized a lot of it wasn't even there. And it's like, well, where did you hear that? And how do you believe that? So when we unpacked all of that, I could see that the light bulb was coming on, you know, and then at the end of the process, you could see how these women started to really blossom as they reclaimed their power, you know, like, I don't, you know, I don't, I will not subscribe to those beliefs. They're not mine. So who cares if my hair is going gray? I'm going to embrace it. And they were starting to impact the women around them. So they'll go to a book club and they would stop dyeing their hair. And the women around them would go, wow, this is amazing. You're inspiring us. And I could see this domino effect. And, you know, and then when I thought about it more, I thought, this is not right that women have to ingest this crap that doesn't serve them. And it's not even true. And I thought what I wanted to do was to create a, an opportunity for women to have um, alternative narratives around aging and explore that. And that's how the first Civil Sirens event and was born in 2018 from that desire, you know, and, and now it's really grown. So I'm really happy. Yeah, oh, I, I love your passion. It's very contagious. Mm -hmm. And um, all the women there are amazing. And um, I love on your website the statement, imagine aging as something you walk towards and embrace. And I've never heard that before. So I'm... <laughs> It's really funny because all my life, you know, when I was single or not, but 
the last 18 years I've been in a relationship but lots of my single friends are on dating sites and they all lie about their age and then they whinge about the men that they meet in you know because obviously they're disappointed because they think they're either 10 mm -hmm. or 20 years younger and I said to mm -hmm. them you know just think of it as a beautiful bottle of red wine and you know as it ages it matures and the taste yeah. is defined and so it's delicious sweeter. yeah yeah and but if you lie at the beginning, then what basis is that for um, a relationship? But um, yeah. you, I know when you talked at Silver Sirens, you mentioned how you've always um, loved age and to do with your culture. You know, when you're 10, you want yeah. to be 20. And can you describe that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a quote that I, you know, I, I, I often Day. And it's for me, it's so true. You know, like I remember when I was 21 thinking, wow, 21's fun. I wonder what 30 would be like, you know. And then I remember 30 thinking 40. And I remember my 40th birthday thinking, wow, this is really quite lovely. I love being 40. I wonder what 50 is going to be like, you know. And I'm now 56, nearly 57. And I'm definitely one of those women that like add age. As soon as I'm 56, I've been saying I'm 57, but I, you know, I have to remind myself I'm not there yet. And I look, I was actually on the on the um, call with a woman before, she's 65, and I said to her, that's the age I want to be, most of all, I love 65. So there's just the, my culture reveres aging, you know, that whole idea that you get better with age, that we, you know, like that lived experience, we cannot undermine that lived experience, but in the Western culture, we tend to undermine it. And it's crazy, we, we defer and look to the younger people, you know, as the holders of whatever is relevant or important, and yet they're, They've never been our age, but we've been their age. So it would make a sense that we know more than they do. And so to waste or to throw away all of those lived experience and undermine it, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's so ludicrous, you know, I just think, wow, really? So I'm so grateful that for me, from a cultural perspective, there's nothing to unpack. You know, there's nothing to unpack. And I have so much compassion for the women I work with and in my community. They have to go through that journey of unpacking. I'm so grateful that there isn't anything for me to unpack because it's not there. And, I'm, and that's because of my culture and my mother and my sisters. My mother embraced, she just modeled for me what it was like to age. So from the age of 50 onwards for her, she just blossomed. You know, she went and studied, she traveled extensively. Um, she broke up with my father, she had other lovers. I just saw this woman that was no longer bound to the house and child rearing flew. I saw her just blossom and I wanted some of that, you know? And then my sisters are quite a bit older than me too. And I saw both of them age and grow, you know, in, in a really beautiful way. So for me, I feel really, really grateful for that. Um, just having that, that foundation, you know, around this time of my life. Yeah, that's what wonderful. And I'm sure you'll inspire people um, to take that attitude because it is a switch in the mindset. And yeah. um, I know that you do a lot with mindset. And um, because, as you mentioned, you know, you had the abandonment issues. And um, I know that you also felt unworthy you know, when you had that termination and things. So do you want to talk a bit about belief systems and um, how you can help empower women? Mm. 
Yeah, I, it's funny when we say how I can help to empower women. I always kind of, I almost kind of feel like, I don't know if, I, I know that we can help to empower through modeling, but I just feel like women are so empowered already, you know? So it's in that sense of like more of the uncovering than the make something that is it's like polishing because women already empowered, you know, it, I just think that we internalize so many negative messaging that we think it's true about us, you know? So I don't think that I can empower them. They're already empowered. I can help them see their, their empowerment, you know? And I think that's really, really important for us to know because it's not like there's no gurus out there doing it. None of us are gurus. We're just leading each other back home. I love that saying. And that's exactly, and our home as women is an empowered space. It's an extremely inspired space. Lovely. And um, yeah, I totally agree with you. It's, um, I often give the analogy of an old-fashioned lampshade, you know. Our light is always shining. It's just that we've permanently got that shade over us and covered yeah. us. We need to sometimes yeah. throw it off and let it shine yeah. and heal away the layers, you know, of um, guilt and shame and blame and... Yeah all the rest of it trauma exactly all sorts of things yeah and, and this is um what i find yes women are empowered however we all go through traumas and ups and downs yes. and it's when we're in that low space so um yeah. could you tell us what, what psychotherapy means to you and what typ typical things people come to see you about and you know yeah. what a typical session looks like yeah look it's always going to be quite varied compared to you know depending on the person but i think the most important thing about psychotherapy is creating a space um where a person maybe for the first time can be seen and heard in a really um loving non-judgmental way i mean that the premise of you know the most the cornerstone of of our training is that we hold a um a position of unconditional positive regard for our clients. So we might, your client could be someone who's done some really horrible things, but in that moment, it's my role to hold a very loving and accepting um, stance for that person. And it might be the very first time or the only time that person experiences that, you know, because because of the family systems and their relationship, even if the other person is being loving to them, they might be, it might be really impossible for them to receive it. But somehow they're in therapy, they're talking to somebody, they're paying for it. It's a professional situation. Usually they allow themselves to be held, you know? So I think the psychotherapy is beautiful for that. And it's talk therapy in the sense that, yes, the person is talking, um, but it's so much more than just talk therapy. There's so much else going on. You know, and I've got a number of different modalities. So in in terms of um, therapeutic skills, I've got a lot of skill set, you know, but I think what I love is, and what my supervisor reminds me of is that in, the, in that therapy process, it's my job to model healthy exchange with my clients, you know, so whatever's going on with whatever they're sharing, whatever's going on between us and them individually, that I constantly model healthy, patterning a healthy relationship to them which I find really great because it helps me to show up correctly you know if I want to misbehave obviously I'm, I'm you know I'm not perfect and I can misbehave in my life 
but I can't misbehave in the way I communicate or relate to them. You know, so if they said something annoying during session, I can't just respond back that I might do in the world friend because, you know, it's like I have a cold, you know, and that's what they've paid for. I have to honor that, you know, so that's great because it really, like I said, it, it keeps me really aligned and in a place of congruency, you know, and for the person, just having a space where you can actually go and unpick. So there's a lot of um, belief around therapy that you can't give advice or you shouldn't talk about your own life. And I'm I am quite um, renegade in that. I don't believe in that because I believe that a lot of therapy was set up through the lenses of colonialism and white supremacy and men, patriarchy, you know. And in that sense, it's the thing of the experts, the therapist is the expert with a white coat, reveals nothing, and, um, you know, their job is to be the, the giver of, of um, expertise, you know, and I push against that. I think most women, and certainly people of colour, we're very different in that. Most people want a therapist that they feel like is real, and that does give them a glimpse of their realness, you know, so in my work, I do tell my clients that I've I've suffered with alcoholism and I've had depression. You know, I think it's, uh, it's that power differential of I'm this perfect person that they can't know anything. I think that's very dated. And I think it is because of that patriarchy and as I said, of, and white supremacy where there is that stuff. And I think that we have to really look at that and challenge that nowadays. So in the therapy room, the difference between me and you is that I've got a, a set of tools that I can use to help you along your journey but I'm not better than you in any way, you know? And I've had difficulties. And I, I find when we create space like that, everyone feels safer, you know? Everyone feels safer. It's like, oh, wow, you went through that and look at you now. That means I can. That means I could possibly, you know, move through that. And I think that's really, really important. So that's a really good um, way of looking at it because... I think people do like to know that. It's like when I was doing sports massage, the, and I worked with many elite athletes, they liked the fact that I was a registered nurse and I knew about the body and knew about the systems and how it works. You know, and yeah. you've been there, so you can empathize with them truly from your heart. Yeah. So you can yeah. have that heart-to-heart -heart connection. And, yeah. um, you know, and, I'm sure you do the sessions online as well with all these lockdowns yes, lately. So do you see Yeah, I do. Yeah, do you see clients globally? I do. I do. I've got a few clients in the US, of course the UK because that's my family's um, is. I see clients in New Zealand. I've got a couple in you know Europe. I've got one in Budapest. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's really great and and of course all over the country as well. You know, I've got clients from as far up as Cairns, Perth, um, Victoria, and that's what I love. You know, um, I get to work with these amazing people from all over the world. You know, like we we live in such interesting times, such dynamic times. Yeah, I think you know, on one level, it's. You know, people have been panicking. There's been a lot of loss of jobs and, you know, um, loss of many things on many levels, lots of lives. Um, however, I think it's been a great opportunity for people to step in their power and shine and choose a new way of living. 
you know, instead of doing the job to please your parents or your partner, you know, you've been influenced by them. So now you can recreate yourself and follow your passion. And yeah. um, I know you're a very passionate person, but also a lot of people have been forced to work from home and do spend a lot of time on the internet. And scientists are saying now a lot of us are suffering with brain fog and things like that and depression and things caused by staying at home. Have you seen many people um, suffering with depression because of staying at home and that lack of contact? Mm -hmm. Have you noticed? There's that? definitely been a spike, sorry. Yeah, there's definitely been a spike amongst um, my clients and I've definitely, my practice has bulged, <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. really got very full since COVID, you know, like I started my full-time, because I was working part-time, so I started my full-time practice um, in the middle of COVID, and there was that concern that, oh my God, this is probably not the best time to start full-time, but honestly, I've just been full since, um, yeah, for the last year and a half, so which I'm so grateful for. It's not great that our mental health has gone, it's been deteriorated, but on the other hand, I think what's great is that people are now willing to get seek help as well, and I think that taboo and stigma around mental health and seeking help has started to reduce. It's not, we're not there yet, but it's certainly started to reduce. So I think part of it could be that more people have got are experiencing depression, or it could be that more people are just willing to get some help. And I think there's a combination of two. I think being um, sedentary, not being able to distract ourselves so much means that we cannot avoid it. We can't use the usual tactics we do to avoid it, to medicate it, to numb it, to stuff it down. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have those, those tools. So I think a lot of people, it's a bit of a mental health reckoning where people have to face their demons and do something about it because they have nowhere else to run, you know? And I think that's why we saw a spike as well. Um, but yeah, I think depression has definitely been one of the ones that's, out of all the diagnoses, um, I do a screening, I'm a psychotherapist, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't diagnose, but I can do screening. And of all the recent screenings I've done, certainly about 65% have been depression, which is definitely a spike. Because usually I tend to attract more people with around anxiety, but at the moment, depression is the one that's the highest right now. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. And what tips do you give to people to stay healthy and on top of things and rise above it? Yeah, look, I'm... I always believe, you know, you live by example. And I, the things that really, really work for me is a combination of, of physical activity. And I was one of those people because I had that body that didn't have to exercise. I didn't start, I didn't hit a gym until I was, I went into menopause. And I remember, you know, I remember looking at my body going, what's going on? And I hit a menopause and I started to get the middle bit. And I'd never had that in my life. And so I was like, oh. So I had to speak to a friend who's a naturopath and she said, you're in menopause. And if you, you know, want to help yourself, you better go and do some exercise. It was when I first started to exercise. And I, I would say that's like right at the core of my wellness and mental health. Um, so I exercise every morning. I'm up a quarter to four and I go down to the gym and I do, you know, do running or a little bit of weights and then I go for a swim and then I get and I come back home and I, and I meditate. So for me, meditation is not as a non-negotiable. 
Um, it's a way that I connect back to my higher self, but also it connects back to source and what is really important. And, you know, if I, the times in my life that I'm so busy that I'm like, oh, I'm too busy, I can't meditate. I know that something's wrong. I know I'm off kilter and I'm totally out of balance if I cannot do something that is so beneficial for all of my well-being. So um, I think of those definitely the meditation, the exercise as my anchor things that are non-negotiable. And we know that with, with physical exercise, it changes our brain patterning and um, all the good hormones get released. So even when someone comes to me and they've got depression, I always say, let's up your activity. That's the first thing I do, let's up your activity. You know, and as soon as they up their activity, something changes. If they've got clinical depression, obviously that's a different thing. You know, but certainly if they get more physical, they start changing. For me, those two things are really important. And spending really um, good time with really good friends, you know, really connecting with people that you love. And and yeah, just, just doing some really special things with those people are really great. I love my partner. I'm in a relationship. I absolutely adore him. And we don't live together. He lives in the mountains. So... You know, we have a weekend relationship, which I think works for both of us so well because he's a, he's a very busy artist and he's always on projects. And our relationship, I find very nurturing, you know, so that's another thing that really feeds me and sustains me. Yeah. Fantastic. And um, we, we are living longer now and healthier. So most of us retain our marbles and... You know, as you're specialising in redefining ageing with your women's group, you know, um, we're typically, you know, living till 80 or something. So what tips can you give to people because they're retiring? And what I hear is people are unprepared. Like lots of my clients have been workaholics and then when they retire, they usually get sick because they haven't had time for yeah. hobbies and passions and... They, they yeah. don't know what to do with their time. Yeah, yeah. Again, I'll go back to exercise. You know, I mean, a lot of this, this um, a lot of the things that work really well around this, how do you, you know, claim this part of your life is around finding purpose. You know, that's a really, really important one. Uh, but I'll always, I'll say it again, that exercise is really, really important as well because at this age, this is where the accumulation of, you know, our lifestyle starts to really start to show up, you know, so if we've made certain life choices, um, we start to really see, you know, as a nurse, you start to really see it in your body. So it's really easy now at this stage to start to kind of slow down and start to physically wind down. And I think that we need to be super, super mindful and on guard of that and making sure that we get in decent amount of physical exercise. I think that's number one, because that's going to inform everything else. And I find that the the people that are thriving the most uh, all do some form of exercise. And, and it's not to intimidate people thinking I have to run a marathon. No, do something because it's not just the physical, but you're talking about the mobility aspect. And this is the stuff that's going to impact the quality of life as we age. You know, nothing impacts the quality of life more than um, our mobility. And once we start to lose the mobility, then our quality of life starts to go. So I, and that's an advice I got from my mother who was very, very healthy right up until a few years ago Then her, her health plummeted, you know, but she was really healthy right up to about 79 and then she got very sick. 
now it's a little bit. So, you know, and I hear that from so many of our elders. Anytime I talk to them, they just say, make sure you keep, you know, keep fit, keep mobile, keep, you know, and that's really, really yeah. important. So there's that. And then, you know, on a psychological side, I would say, if you've retired, you know, the whole concept of retirement is so outdated, you know, and we had a lovely speaker, you know, spoke about that, yeah. Catherine Rickwood, at the Redefining Agent event, she spoke about retirement being redundant, and it really is, and it was developed at a particular time, industrial revolution, people died at a certain age, so this is what retirement's about. That no longer fits the model, the way that we live, you know, so we need an updated system. And I think there's nothing wrong with people um, retiring from full-time work, um, but it's useful. If you've got another 30 years of life, it's useful to redirect that energy to a passion. You know, and that could be something that's that's a business that's going to make you money, or it could just be a way, if you're, if you're financial and that's not important to you, there's so many amazing courses to give back to. So many things you can champion. There's so many other people, women, children that you can take under your wings, you can support, you can mentor. There's just so many things. That, but we know the research just shows that people that have passion, a passion or purpose are the ones that thrive the most in this time. So I say redirect your energy somewhere, you know, to a good cause. There's so many, there's no, there's no shortage of good causes to redirect it to. Fantastic. And also, I know you've been, you were asked to go on uh, the TV series, SBS, I believe, talking about redefining aging. Can you tell us a bit about that? Or is it a secret? Yeah, that was just a few, yeah, like that was just a few weeks ago. That was on the 15th of February. And so it was SBS, Growing Older, Loving Life. The show, sorry, the show was Insight. And the episode was Growing Older, Loving Life. And they had a panel of about um, 12 people um, talking about aging and different um, different perspective on aging. You know, and it's funny because um, I'm just watching a little snippet because one of my my, my um, social media person did a little snippet on, on on Facebook, and it was about it was a it was a conversation around invisibility. You know, and the person asked me, "Do you ever feel invisible?" and it does bother me a little bit that there's a narrative that women repeat around we're invisible, we're invisible, we're becoming invisible. And it's almost like the more they repeat it, everyone starts to pick up on it and, um, and you know, kind of repeat it and it kind of self-perpetuates. And what I said in the piece was invisible from whom? You know, I'm certainly not invisible to myself or to anyone who's important to me. So if we're looking to these arbitrary people for visibility, there's something wrong there. Why are we looking outside of ourselves for people to validate us, you know? So I really am not a fan of that rhetoric around we're invisible. And it feels like something that women just repeat and repeat and repeat. I don't know if it serves us. And I don't know if it's true. And if we have a real desire to be visible to, to random people, we've got to look at that, you know? Maybe it's okay for us to no longer be in the spotlight. That's the thing about elderhood. It's okay for us to move to one side and allow other people to be in the spotlight. It's okay. We don't always have to be in the spotlight. Why? You know, there's enough going on in our individual lives that we've got the visibility we need. So I always question that, you know, when I hear it. Mm. 
That's um, wonderful words of advice because it's like if everybody's repeating the story, then it becomes a reality. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like like the saying, where your energy goes, the focus goes. And That's to close up, would you like to tell us um, where Silver Sirens is going next? And obviously, I'll put all the links to accompany the show. Thank you. Yeah, so as I said, Silver Sirens started off as an online, annual online event and a Facebook group. And moving forward, we are still going to be an annual online event, which will be our signature um, event every year. And I'm just working on this year's event as we speak. And um, you know, together with that, one well, the good thing about Silver, the Redefined Asian event now, now is hybrid, which means that yes, we're based in Sydney, but women from all around the world can join online, which I'm very excited about. And we've also launched our membership program, which is going to be open to the public in July. At the moment, it's in its test phase, and it's a it's a it's a um, Silver Sirens virtual sanctuary, and it's a space that women can come together and they can find all the resources they need around menopause, emptiness, um, lifestyle, um, about mental, you know, about mindset and about elderhood. How do we prepare ourselves for elderhood and do that, you know, skillfully. Uh, and together with all of that, they can, there's also events. So we can, we do yoga together. We're going to have, we have a book club. We have um, an eat, eat meet and cook, meet, cook and eat, which we cook together and eat together. So I have a vision of this, um, this virtual world where women from around the world can come together and there's always something to do with other women. You know, so that's something that I'm gonna be spending the next few years really developing. We, like I said, it's in this test phase and I see that what is out there now is just its infancy. I see the potential to be so big. I've actually had so many conversations in the last few weeks with women in America who are really interested about the idea. They've heard about it and they want to see how they can get involved. So I can see that we're starting to kind of get a foothold in all these different places, which is really, really exciting. And plus, you know, we'll be doing regular events all year round. So um um, we do our monthly thriving through midlife, which means every month I'll have three women who I believe are thriving through a midlife in a conversation. So if there's any women who are listening and you see yourself as a woman who's thriving in midlife, please reach out to Beverly to get my details or reach out to me directly, you know, because I think there's so many women that embody that. And when women are struggling with the aging process, seeing examples of women that are really thriving, it's, I think, is the best this medicine for them. So the more that we can get that message out there, the better. Thank you, Faith. And I know your team is very inclusive. It's all about community and unity yeah. and everybody's so caring and loving and supportive. Yeah. And it all stems from you. So I would like to mm -hmm. honor you for being who you are and um, keep shining, keep thriving. And uh, I look forward to joining future events and spreading the word and making the <laughs> community happen. So thank you yeah, for giving up your you. precious time. Thank you.